MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 111 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, March 8th. I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. We have a lot of news today. We're getting into the thick of it with Jim Jordan Weaponization Subcommittee as we learn that his dozen or so quote-unquote whistleblowers are actually disgruntled former FBI employees who are, in some cases, being paid by Trump allies like Kosh Patel to air their MAGA grievances. Yeah, and we have the long-awaited Department of Justice response to the courts who asked for the DOJ's position on whether Donald Trump is immune from civil suits over the insurrection, as well as some news from the Manhattan DA's criminal investigation into Donald. Uh, But first, uh, Pete, I want to thank our new patrons for as little as a buck an episode. You can support the show and get the ad-free feed as well as invites to our happy hour Q&As with me and Pete. We're still going to schedule the first one here coming up pretty soon. And for two bucks an episode, you'll get me and Pete's weekly bonus wrap-up episode as well. Uh, We'll also give you a shout-out with whatever name you decide to pledge with. And so, you know, it's like pub trivia, right? Ron Burgundy will read anything that is put on that teleprompter. And when I say anything, I mean eh, me, eh. So thanks to this week's new patrons, Maria Francine McCassie, Cheryl Harris, Suzanne Kahn, Colleen Aaron, Audun Kavazbo, Hum2, Benjamin Bressler, Linda Mann, Kelly Chambers, Kathy Saderholm, I Love Jeremy, congratulations, Jeremy, Lois Swaffer, Jane Feigenskeen, uh, Mike Soltoff, and David Bershoss. So thank you very much. To all of our patrons, we really appreciate you. So, Pete, the the Dems on the House Judiciary have released a 316-page report on the state of Republican investigations, including the disposition of the whistleblowers, I'm doing air quotes when I say whistleblowers, that Jim Jordan continues to reference in the Subcommittee on Weaponization hearings, which, as you know, we are covering on this podcast. So let's listen to a clip Uh, of you and me, Pete. This is from episode 109, two weeks ago, about these whistleblowers. I'm really glad there are some Democrats on that committee who can push back on a lot of this stuff. Um, There was a really, uh, Dan Goldman is on this committee, who who is is great. There was an exchange 
that was tense between him uh, and Jordan, because Goldman was pressing Jim Jordan on Jordan's claim that Republican staffers have spoken with dozens of FBI whistleblowers. Uh, But Goldman repeatedly pressed Jordan for those transcripts, notes, testimony from those whistleblowers, anything, while other Democratic members jumped in asking for the whistleblowers' names. I'm not cool with that, but... I don't think they exist. Jordan said the subcommittee would schedule each of the whistleblowers for depositions, which Democrats could attend, and said he would speak uh, about how we handle information from those prior conversations with whistleblowers. Yeah, well, look, no surprise we were right. I've seen the state of the Republican investigations and the state is not strong. Let me read to you from the forward, just the beginning of this report, which was written by Jerry Nadler, who's the ranking member of the House Judiciary, as well as Stacey Plaskett, who's the ranking member of the Weaponization Subcommittee. And I hate to even call it that because that somehow legitimizes in some way that there's any weaponization going on. But, you know, be that as it may, here's the beginning of the forward. Quote, This partisan investigation, such as it is, rests in large part on what Chairman Jordan has described as, quote, dozens and dozens of whistleblowers coming to us, talking about what is going on, the political nature at the Justice Department, unquote. To date, the House Judiciary Committee has held transcribed interviews with three of these individuals. Chairman Jordan has, of course, refused to name any of the other, quote, dozens and dozens who may have spoken with him. He's also refused to share any of the documents which these individuals may have provided to the committee. Nevertheless, based on interviews of the three witnesses that have been made available to us, we are able to draw a number of striking conclusions about the state of the Republican investigation. First, the three individuals we have met are not, in fact, whistleblowers. These individuals who put forward a wide range of conspiracy theories did not present actual evidence of any wrongdoing at the Department of Justice or the Federal Bureau of Investigation, unquote. Yeah. And keep in mind, by the way, I think Matt Gates has come out to call for all Democrats to be removed from the Weaponization <laughs> Committee, um, probably because of Daniel Goldman calling Jim Jordan out on his BS, as well as, as Jamie Raskin doing the same thing. But, you know, that clip we played, it was Daniel Goldman like, dude, you don't have dozens of whistleblowers. You're full of it. Uh, but this report is pretty st- stunning because they go on, Pete, to say, second, the transcribed interviews we have held thus far refute House Republican narrative about bias at the Department of Justice. We urge Chairman Jordan to schedule the public testimony of these individuals without delay. The American public should be able to judge from themselves whether these witnesses or their allegations are remotely credible. So they want them to come out and publicly testify. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Yeah. And third, this this little intro says, these interviews also reveal the active engagement and orchestration of disturbing outside influence on the witnesses and potentially the Republican members of the select committee, subcommittee, a network of organizations led by former Trump administration officials like Kosh Patel and Russell Vaught appears to have identified these witnesses, provided them with financial compensation, and found them employment after they left the FBI. These same individuals lobbied for the creation of the select subcommittee in the first place. They have a story to tell, and they appear to be using the House Republicans to tell it. (laughs) Yeah, and it, it finishes up, quote, fourth, and finally, nearly all of the Republicans involved in this investigation, the witnesses, some of the members, and certainly their outside operators, are tied together by the attacks of January 6, 2021. The witnesses whom we have met objected to the arrest of individuals suspected to have laid siege to the United States Capitol. 
Others of the quote-unquote dozens and dozens, we suspect, participated directly in the riot. If this investigation is an attempt to whitewash the insurrection or hedge against pending indictments, it has been spectacularly ineffective. But these extremists share a view antithetical to the safety of our republic, and the American public has a right to be concerned. So that's how it ends up. Yeah, yeah and of, of course they're going to say, you know, because the Democrats are like, put these people on in public, let them testify, let them tell their stories, and let the American public decide how credible they are. But of course, you know, the, the Republicans are going to say, well, they are whistleblowers and we should protect their identities, you know, and I'm again, I'm using so many air quotes. I feel like Don Jr. That's how many air quotes I'm using right yeah, now. But but the ridiculous thing, they're already known. I mean, we, we know who they are in many cases that th many of these folks have already been out on Fox and Bongino and even like in some cases, RT and Sputnik, you know, arms of uh, Russian propaganda for the Russian government. But these are the Republican witnesses. And it's just, you know, to sit there and have the Democrat side saying, hey, we just want to hear from your witnesses. Put them in public hearings. Let's hear what they have to say. The fact that the Republicans don't want to do that, I think, you know, that just tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, of course. And and the findings are striking uh, as as they, you know, as they indicated in that introduction letter. Finding number one, and we're going to just go over these briefly, Pete. Uh, this is a 316-page report you can read for yourself, but we're going to go over these briefly to just show you how not credible these three of the dozens and dozens are. So first of all, finding number one, no evidence of misconduct. And we talk about George Hill, one of the three, a retired FBI supervisory intelligence analyst from the Boston field office. He claimed to have learned that a financial institution provided the FBI with evidence it believed may be relevant to the 1-6 attack on the Capitol investigations. He had no knowledge of the actual origins of this supposed evidence, never used the evidence himself, and never looked at the actual document containing the information. In fact, he did not even work on January 6 cases himself. At most, he supervised intelligence analysts who did research in support of less than a dozen of the cases. So that's... Uh, George Hill, he also alleged that the FBI's Washington field office asked the Boston field office to assist in running particularly or particular 1-6 related investigative leads. Uh, he admitted he was not actually privy to those conversations. As far as he knew, Boston exercised its independent judgment and declined to pursue those leads. Again, his testimony is based on secondhand knowledge. Again, even standing alone, the underlying allegation does not actually show either misconduct or the weaponization of the government. So those are the totally debunked claims of George Hill, one of the three. Yeah, you know, and it just all this bugs me. And we'll see, you know, I'll talk about Garrett O'Boyle next. But uh, you, see, you don't do this. As, I mean, everything you learn as an FBI employee, whether you're an agent, whether you're an analyst, if you're an investigator, it's very much sort of drummed into the culture that, you know, you gather the facts and you talk about what you know. You don't speculate. If somebody else is doing something that you don't have knowledge about, that's not the sort of thing that, you know, you sit there and go to as a quote unquote whistleblower to some committee to make allegations about something that you had no direct knowledge about. I mean, it just, it, it, it strikes me as it just not only dumb on the part of the committee to have folks in, the, in there like this, but also folks that, you know, you wouldn't, it's just not part of the ethos of being an investigator. And so I don't understand how that split happens, but let, you know, Garrett O'Boyle, who apparently is, a, again, this is all from the committee report, a suspended FBI special agent from the Wichita Reg Resident Agency in Kansas. He claimed that he had made protected disclosures to the committee Republicans, but 
in his interview, declined to state for the record what those disclosures might be. Based on his testimony, however, it appears that he was asked to consider taking a particular investigative step with respect to a January 6th matter, that he declined to do so, and that he suffered no professional repercussions for exercising his judgment. Nothing in his testimony suggests misconduct at the FBI. All right. So what is the resident, Wichita resident agency? So in the in the FBI, you have the, the big offices. They're called field offices, and there are 56 of those spread across the United States. And those are the main offices of, you know, organizationally, they have either a special agent in charge of them or the big ones like New York and Washington, Washington field office in LA have an assistant director in charge that because they're so large. But then within those field offices, you have smaller sub offices called resident agencies. And there, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And in this case, the Wichita resident agency is out of, I believe, the Kansas City field office. But again, these are these are smaller offices. You'll have anything. There are RAs that have two agents. There are RAs that have a, you know, a few mm. dozen. But think of those as sub-offices of one of the FBI's 56 field offices. Okay. And he was suspended. Right. According to the, uh, according to the committee. And it looks like he is still... You know, several of these folks uh, still employees uh, under suspension. I guess Stephen Friend, who we'll talk about, you, you'll talk about next, uh, may have resigned from the FBI. But but there are folks who are both, you know, former FBI employees as well as current suspended employees. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, so here's the third whistleblower, quote unquote, that they got testimony from Stephen Friend, a former special agent with the FBI's Daytona Beach resident agency. Uh, and he had two claims that he made. Um, first, he claimed that the FBI departed from its internal operations manual as it man- as it managed hundreds of cases after the 1-6 Capitol attack. Friend brought this claim to the Justice Department IG, the Inspector General Horowitz, right? And the Office of Special Counsel, not Jack Smith, but the Office of Special Counsel within the DOJ. Both rejected his claim. The Office of Special Counsel noted in its rejection letter that FBI policy explicitly allows for departure from the manual in certain circumstances. Friend admitted that he had no knowledge of any discussion at FBI leadership related to a departure from the manual, and he could not clearly explain why such a departure might be harmful. So I'm not real sure. You might have a little bit more insight into the FBI manual and how departure is pretty normal in certain circumstances. And how this guy saying you departed from the manual proves that that the, you you've been weaponized. D- does that does that make sense to you? What what the uh, at least what the special counsel's rejection letter notes? Yeah, no, not not at all. And look, I mean, in this case, you know, there is unlike the office of special counsel Jack Smith or Robert Mueller or others, this is a standalone agency. It's not even part of DOJ. It's a independent organization that primarily looks at oh, right, right, the right. Hatch Act, not limited to the Hatch Act, but if somebody's engaging in prohibited political activity, things that are not, um, you know, the sort of ethical political activity that should not be uh, done by, this is the group, for instance, that found that Kellyanne Conway had violated on, I think, multiple occasions, the Hatch Act. I mean, this is the sort of body that takes a look at who the employee is, the nature of their employment, what statements or things they did, and say, okay, either this runs afoul of the Hatch Act or it doesn't. So, you know, they took these allegations from Friend, according to the committee, looked at them and said, look, we don't, we don't see a violation here, unlike 
what we saw Kellyanne doing, unlike I think what they said Mark Meadows did, you know, they they do sort of go through all, they are a clearinghouse for any sort of allegations about improper political activity. They'll look into those and apply the law to that and make a determination. And in this case, it looks like they looked at friends' uh, allegations and, and said they didn't have merit. Gotcha. Okay. So now the other claim, uh, Pete, that this guy made, the second claim that this guy made, friend, is he objected to the use of a SWAT team in the arrest of certain January 6th suspects on August 24th, 2022. The suspects arrested that day are members of the Three Percenters Domestic Extremist Group. On cross-examination during, you know, when the when they were allowed to talk to these three quote-unquote whistleblowers, on cross-examination, Friend admitted he was not a member of the SWAT team, did not participate in any decisions about the use of the SWAT team, did not review the SWAT team matrix, and was not certain which suspect the SWAT team would arrest. He acknowledged that the individuals arrested that day were known by the FBI to be armed and dangerous. He presented no evidence, zero evidence, to suggest that the FBI's decision to use a SWAT team was anything more than a precaution to protect FBI agents and personnel and other law enforcement officers. So that was his other whistleblowing claim. Yeah. And the thing is, when you find out the circumstances, I mean, early when this information broke, you know, the New York Post, I think, did a big series and they had a picture of him. He might have been in the military, but he was in, you know, what looked to be an army uniform or something in a tactical outfit holding an M4, an automatic weapon. And the implication certainly was that he was on the SWAT team and he refused to do it. But what was not present was what we find out now through the committee that, wait a minute, this subject was a three percenter. This subject was known by the FBI to be armed and dangerous every single time, 100 times out of 100 times in a scenario like that where you have a subject which is known to be armed and dangerous. If you have the ability to use the SWAT team to conduct that arrest, use the SWAT team to conduct that arrest. At the end of the day, it is eminently reasonable to put officer safety first. I mean, we've seen tragic things where, you know, there are two Florida agents who were just tragically killed going to do some, you know, cyber case, going to do an arrest of somebody who had no background, no history of violence, who happened to have a gun, opened fire and killed both of them. So when you have a circumstance like this, where you have somebody who is a member of a group which is engaged in, you know, in violent activity, allegedly around January 6th, when you have a particular one individual who has a history of both being armed and dangerous, you absolutely use the SWAT team. And some notion that that was inappropriate, again, when pressed under oath to provide the truth, guess what? All this nonsense, all this bullshit allegations and innuendo falls apart and you find out at the end of the day, all of these things that the FBI was doing were eminently reasonable and appropriate. And so, you know, that takes us to the next finding of the committee, which is the witnesses, when you ask why, why are these stories coming out the way they have? Finding number two, the witnesses are deeply biased. The committee notes that George Hill claimed, among other things, that the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021 was, quote, a setup that it was, quote, a larger hashtag Democrat plan using their enforcement arm, the hashtag FBI, and that rioter Ashley Babbitt was, quote, unquote, murdered by a Capitol Police officer. He also described the FBI as, quote, the brown shirt enforcers of the at DNC, an apparent reference to Nazi stormtroopers. Kirito Boyle, on the other hand, declined to say that Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick died as the result of the actions of rioters during the attack on the Capitol. He compared COVID-19 vaccine acceptance to the actions of Reserve Police Battalion 101, a Nazi police force. And then finally, Stephen Friend also embraces conspiracy theories about the January 6th Capitol attack. 
In a December 2nd, 2022 public letter to FBI Director Ray, Friend asked what he described as, quote, tough but fair, unquote, questions such as, quote, will you commit to educating executive management personnel that J6 protesters did not kill any police officers? Quote, is Ray Epps a confidential human source, unquote? And, quote, why didn't the FBI open a civil rights violation investigation concerning the killing of Ashley Babbitt? Quote, the committee concludes, Friend has also demonstrated severe animus against the FBI, calling it a, quote, a feckless garbage institution, unquote, that, quote, needs to be control-alt-deleted and completely eliminated and eradicated from the federal government, unquote. From when he joined Twitter on November 16th, 2022 through February 14th, 2023, Friend posted over 20 times calling for the FBI to be defunded, dismantled, dissolved, aborted, abolished, or otherwise ended. Yeah, so totally non-biased, super fair, reasonable uh, whistleblower friend. Right, and I, I can't help but think back to you know Chuck Grassley and then then Senator Kennedy grilling uh, uh, FBI Director Ray. There was a uh, an FBI supervisor at Washington Field Office who had the temerity on Twitter to like a Washington Post editorial, which questioned whether or not Bill Barr was a good or appropriate attorney general. But liking that one tweet, liking a Washington Post editorial will draw the ire of Republicans in the Senate. But meanwhile, people, you know, comparing the FBI to Nazi stormtroopers, comparing them, you know, calling for their abortion or their abolition, that's all apparently Mm. fine. Not only fine, but they become witnesses and whistleblowers to a a subcommittee investigation into the weaponization of the government. It's absolutely ridiculous. And and it's not just and so we've gone over that their findings are irrelevant and that their 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 bullshit broke down and unraveled under cross examination and that they are very biased based on their uh, previous public statements. But finally, their third finding is that they're supported by extreme MAGA operatives. And this blows me away, Pete. This absolutely blows me away. Witness Garrett O'Boyle and Stephen Friend, both of those witnesses testified that they've received financial support from Kosh Patel, with Friend explaining that Patel sent him five grand almost immediately after they connected in November 2022. Patel has also promoted Friend's forthcoming book on social media. But Patel's assistance has not just been financial, says the Democrats of the House Judiciary. Patel arranged for attorney Jesse Banal who served as Trump's top election fraud lawyer when Trump falsely claimed the 2020 election was stolen, to serve as counsel for Garrett O'Boyle. When committee Democrats asked O'Boyle about this financial connection, Banal appeared to surprise his client with an announcement that he was now representing O'Boyle pro bono. Committee Democrats infer that Banal hoped to distance his connection to Patel and others. And Patel also found friend his next job, Friend now works as a fellow on domestic intelligence and security services with the Center for Renewing America, which is run by former Trump official Russell Vaught and is largely funded by the Conservative Partnership Institute, CPI, which itself is run by former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows and former Senator Jim DeMint. So not only are these these three whistleblowers getting money, they're getting jobs, they're getting employment, and they're getting pro bono representation from Trump world. So that also really tears at their credibility, at least 
on Earth 1. On, on Earth 2, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter for Republicans, uh, just as their bullshit stories unraveling and claims unraveling won't matter. And just as their previous weird uh, MAGA claims and ties to January 6th and the insurrection won't matter either. And now with Matt Gates calling to remove Democrats completely from the Weaponization Committee, I guess that truly turns it into weaponization, as Jamie Raskin put it, that the committee itself is, 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 weaponi- is weaponized um, for the purpose of, of Republican talking points, whitewashing the insurrection. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's just, it's pretty stunning to me. Um, like you said, how someone can like a Washington Post article and be, you know, called out by Republican senators, but this kind of behavior, totally cool. Yeah, and it's not it's it's what she said. I mean, this I agree with you. This is the most shocking of all the findings. I mean, think about what they're saying. They're saying that these hyperpartisans, Cash Patel, you know, the guy who's writing kitty books for, you know, for in, indoctrinating MAGA youth with stories of, you know, Cash the Wizard defending King Trump or whatever the hell the story is, actually going out and it looks like finding disgruntled malcontents and paying them to be whistleblowers. And, you know, the second point is like, who, this cash is not a, he, cash does not have a lot of cash. I mean, cash is certainly very well versed in, you know, grifting off the, the MAGA gravy train and running around on the we, reawaken America or whatever the hell that tour is called with, you know, Mike Flynn and others. But it isn't Patel paying these folks out of his pocket, in my opinion. That money is coming from somewhere else. And, you know, the final point the committee made that, you know, this the Center for Renewing America funded by the Conservative Partnership Institute. We've got Mark Meadows and Jim DeMint where they're getting money. There is These are pass-through entities, it looks like to me, where some donor somehow, whether it's one big donor or whether it's a bunch of $10 donors to some Trump ad, are paying for these folks. And how any of them... It's like as FBI investigators would not foresee that maybe, just maybe, a Democrat would ask you when you're in sworn testimony or some sworn interview, oh, hey, by the way, have you ever received money from anybody as part of this testimony or connected to this testimony? How did you come into contact with your legal advice and attorneys? How Have you ever heard of Cash Patel? Did Cash Patel ever pay you? Did, did no one? On the Republican side, consider that when they sat down that they might be asked these questions <laughs> by somebody on the other side. And that's the whole reason Matt Gates wants to throw out Democrats, because none of this stands up to any sort of halfway intelligent scrutiny. And it's just been blown up to date. This, all the Twitter folks that they hauled in and got their ass handed to them, the Republican, there is nothing there for them to find. And if there's anybody who's willing to sit there and throw reasonably intelligent questions at any witness, it's going to blow all this up. And so if the committee wants to continue in any way, shape, or form and have any hope of being an effective mouthpiece for the land of MAGA, they're going to have to get rid of the Democrats. Whether they'll be able to do it, I mean, who knows? Yeah. Oh, and by the way, the Conservative Partnership Institute run by Meadows and Dement did receive a $1 million payout from the Save America PAC. Um, we, we saw that in, in January 6th testimony. It sort of flew right by there. But it's, it's also very interesting that right after the election, when, when Republicans realized they had just barely scraped by and gotten the House, that all of a sudden operatives who may have been paid by Trump PACs are now paying witnesses to become whistleblowers in an investigation to weapon that the DOJ was weaponized by Democrats. It's, it's not surprising, but 
wow, like, could you be more obvious? Yeah. And I think if I recall correctly, that activity, like what Save America PAC was raising money and claiming they're going to do with it versus what their actual expenditures are, is a topic of investigation, I think, by, if not Jack Smith, by others in the government. So I think, you know, that very behavior is something that there may be criminal ramifications about the way some of those monies have been dispersed. Yeah, totally. Uh, he is definitely looking into that. That went out and did some massive round of subpoenas that we saw uh, at the end of the calendar year last year in December of 2022. The Save America PACs, plus, the Save America plus three other PACs, plus the Election Defense Fund and their vendors all being uh, looked at uh, for, uh, you know, what I think is a, is a pretty solid fraud investigation uh, by special counsel Jack Smith. So we'll see where that goes and if they make this connection uh, to the Weaponization Committee. Uh, because that could just absolutely explode the scope of Jack Smith's investigation, honestly, if if we're looking at what the PACs have invested in and what other kinds of criminal activities they're up to, like paying whistleblowers to testify to Congress, mm, could get really interesting really fast. Uh, but again, like we need, it's, I remember when the Mueller investigation was going on, it's like, he's got to stop criming because at some point we have to end this investigation and get to the indictment part, you know, and so we'll see, we'll see how this ends up, what this turns up. But there are, there are certain investigations that are just too big. Um, you know, like when uh, Pomerantz and Dunn at the Manhattan DA's office, and we're about to talk about Manhattan DA after this quick break, when they were like, look, we wanted to do a RICO, uh, you know, enterprise, um, investigation, which is Little Rico in New York. Uh, but we just didn't have the resources. That's too big of an investigation to look at the Trump org, the Trump Foundation, the Trump University, Trump wine, Trump steaks, all of that bullshit and all of the crimes and tax evasion and fraud that were that this that you know has been going on for the last four decades at this organization. We don't nobody has the resources to make that kind of investigation happen. So, you know, at some point, it's like, what roads do you go down and what roads do you not go down? And it'll be interesting to see what ends up in, in his final report. Uh, but with that, I want to talk more about this Manhattan DA stuff because we've got some new witnesses in, but we have to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. And welcome back. There's some news coming out of the zombie case at the Manhattan DA's office. Here's the lead from CNN. Kellyanne Conway, who managed the final months of Donald J. Trump's 2016 campaign, met with prosecutors from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office on Wednesday, the latest sign that the office is ramping up its criminal investigation into the former president. Now, you know, why this is interesting beyond the fact that we're now talking, what, seven years later, is that the... <laughs> the the DA's office is moving up to, you know, and I think there's reporting today that they may have uh, either interviewed or imminently uh, be about to interview uh, Hope Hicks. They are closing in on the people who are right there next to Trump. These are, this is not some, you know, campaign finance chairman. This is not some, you know, undersecretary of some, you know, federal agency. These are Trump's inner circle from the campaign. When you talk about people like Kellyanne Conway, when you talk about people like Hope Hicks, obviously Michael Cohen has been reported, he has said, He's been in for several sessions. But when you get to the stage, you know, these are not like, oh, hey, Allison, let's talk to Kellyanne tomorrow. Okay, sound good. Yeah, do you have time at 10 o'clock? Okay, fine, let's go. Prosecutors are going to sit down there with the information that they have. They know and are going to map out what questions they want to ask. They know 
what the truth is in many cases from other evidence that they've developed. They're going to have big outlines with big binders of what they want to ask and where they want to go. So the point I'm making is this is not some sort of spur of the moment, okay, we've done everything, let's move to the final tier. This is something, you know, in a good investigation and with good prosecutors, and I have no reason to believe that, you know, the Manhattan DA's office is anything but that. This is going to be something very deliberate that a lot of work has gone into it. And when you see not only Kellyanne, but then also allegedly Hope Hicks recently, it tells me that they're at a very, you know, sort of mature point of their investigation. Yeah. And and just, you know, for the record here, the reason that Kellyanne and Hope Hicks uh, are important here is because Kellyanne was the person that Michael Cohen notified after making the hush money payment. And Hope Hicks uh, was on a call, according to the FBI, in the Cohen part of the case, uh, Hope Hicks was on a call with Cohen and Trump about the stormy hush money payment. But here's a, one little problem here, and I think they're going to have a hard time finding credible witnesses uh, in, in this case, um, just because of the nature of some of these witnesses. Uh, but but Hope Hicks told Congress that she wasn't present for any conversations where Cohen and Trump discussed the hush money. So she could be easily or, you know, if I were the defense, I would be like, ah, but didn't you give inconsistent testimony to Congress? Didn't you tell the DA something different? That can impeach a witness. We saw it in the Durham-Sussman uh, trial with Peter Baker, who told Congress one thing and told the Durham, one thing, the grand jury, one thing. And he actually told the inspector general a different thing, three different things. So that those kinds of inconsistent testimony, which is why I've been saying for ever that DOJ really couldn't go forward until they had all of the transcripts and all of the testimony and that the one six committee was done and finished and they had everything so that they could look for those inconsistent pieces of testimony so that their witnesses would not be impeached on the stand were they to bring prosecutions in the January 6th investigations. You have to have that stuff. Uh, or at least you want to before you find out during trial that your witness told Congress something different that they told than they told you. So that could make Hope Hicks not the greatest witness in the world either. If she told, if you know, if in fact she did tell Congress something different uh, than she told the DA's office, which isn't necessarily perjury, she might have not known at the time and was reminded at some point, but it still doesn't look good uh, for, you know, as a, as a, if I were a defense lawyer, I would be p picking her apart for that. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's been the problem with a lot of things. You know, Mike Cohen is, is a felon, right? I mean, he was convicted of a crime. And so anybody who is going to try and use him as a witness on the government side, whether it's the, you know, the DA level or the federal level, you can anticipate that there are going to be questions about, well, you know, this guy's a felon. How can you trust what he has to say? He lied for Trump for years. Why do you not think he's lying to you now, members of the jury? So that is a problem for him. It is, pro you know, same thing that goes for like Lev Parnas and all these other knuckleheads and the Rudy Ukraine stuff. A Manafort. Yeah, or Manafort. It like happened all, with like, Manafort and Gates. Every time right? people say, well, you've got somebody who was a witness, you've got somebody who told you this, you need to take that next step and say, okay, well, let's look at their behavior, the totality of what we know about them and what they are going to to what a defense attorney is going to try and do to undermine their credibility. Now, you know, Hope Picks, again, remember she had those, you know, the texts that have come out since where she's like saying, oh my God, we're never going to be employed again. People are going to think we're domestic terrorists or, or words to that effect. So, you know, this is a chance, all right, when you're under oath in front of the grand jury, if you want to continue to be viewed as a unemployable domestic terrorist, then fudge the facts. You know, here's your chance to essentially come clean and take care of yourself because Donald Trump sure as hell is not going to do that, you know, for the for the next 50, 60 years of your life. So I don't know uh, what she has to say. You know, Kellyanne is the person that Cohen said he notified. 
We don't know what Cohen said about that conversation because while Cohen has said, yes, I went in and had these conversations, he's been very diligent about not saying what he was actually asked, let alone what he said in response. So when Conway goes, when Kellyanne goes in there, you know, she she knows that Cohen presumably has been asked about that interaction, but she doesn't know what he said. So she's in a little bit, I mean, you know, might she say, oh, I don't remember if I had to guess, yeah, there's probably a pretty good likelihood of that. But, you know, we'll see what comes out of it. But I, I agree with you. I don't know that mm-hmm. there's going to be a super credible rock star witness who has damning information about what Trump said or did, who is unimpeachable and that a jury is going to look at and say, your word is like, you know, the, the graven stones with, you know, the the word of God, right? <laughs> I mean, there, there are going to be problems with all of these witnesses, I think. Well, it's the documents, just like it was in the Manafort case. Rick Rick Gates was a shit witness, and the and the, the documents put him away. Even a MAGA lady who we we called the rural juror uh, was like, "Look, I I was they were hung on seven of the eighteen counts, but we convicted on eleven because the documents are the, it's the documents, it's the paperwork, and you know. So if you've got the checks and you've got the false business entries, and if you've been able to pressure Weiselberg to say, yeah." Uh, I falsified that business entry, then, you know, the, the documents speak for themselves. And I, and I can see also, you know, but which is why I still don't understand why he's not, or maybe he is, going after the larger inflation of assets, crimes, and tax fraud crimes uh, for the state of New York. But I also don't understand why the feds and the IRS aren't going after uh, you know, these I'm, I'm, crimes as I'm, well. I'm with so. you. I mean, it's your point about, like, how how do you, like, when we were trying to unpack the, the financial reality of the Trump empire, when we were starting up the, the Mueller investigation, and, you know, days before that, when we were starting to think about, you know, we just opened the case on Trump, and how do you think about that? It is so large. I mean, I, I'm not sure that a massive task force of FBI and IRS agents and financial and forensic accountants and everybody like that could get their head around the scope of that enterprise. And that, you know, what that group would bring to the table compared to what, you know, Manhattan DA's office is great. They're competent. They have great prosecutors. They have experts, but they have nowhere near the resources that the feds do. And so when you look and say, okay, well, what, remember that, uh, you know, up in Letitia James at the conclusion of one of her cases referred all this information to, I think, mm-hmm. SDNY and the FBI and RS saying, hey, we think, you know, there were violations of New York state tax law. We think it's reasonable to believe that there are violations of federal tax law. Guess what? I agree. And so the question is, mm-hmm. what in the hell? I mean, you know, the the, the IRS is perfectly capable of <laughs> auditing somebody who claimed, you know, on $70,000 of income, claimed, you know, $5,000 of deductions, and really they only had 3000 They can audit them till the cows come home. But yet they're going to get give yeah, is Trump it political? a pass? No, they I like- think it's just too hard. Uh, well, I think it's both. Well, I like were they because they got I mean, they almost pretty much got nabbed for those, you know, that Comey and McCabe. Right. Yeah, you can you can write you thing. can you and can so do those, it, you know, proctological know. tax examinations of Jim Comey and Andy McCabe who have never been audited before and were found like completely clean. I think Comey said he got like a $20 refund or something like that. So you have these two upstanding <laughs> <laughs> you know, law enforcement officers with no history of tax fraud who are getting these invasive, invasive audits, but yet the other guy mm-hmm. with an alleged history of demonstrated tax fraud, including prosecutions at the state level, well, we're just going, oh, that's too hard. It's too tough. But we're weaponizing uh, the right, agencies, right? right? right yeah. Right. Okay. All right. Well, 
anyway, that, it's just absolutely ridiculous. But you know, we'll see. We'll see what uh, comes out of this and how big and broad they want to go. Whether they want to just stick with the hush money payment up there at the Manhattan DA's office, uh, or or if it's something bigger, as Cohen has kind of been hinting at uh, on those last few appearances on Nicole Wallace. Uh, some other big news, Pete. The, the Department of Justice has weighed in, albeit reluctantly in the civil proceeding against Donald Trump for the attack on the Capitol. You'll remember several parties are suing Donald for the incitation of the insurrection, including Eric Swalwell at all, Blasingame at all. Even Benny Thompson had a lawsuit, though he dropped it when he became chair of the January 6th Select Committee. But the judge consolidated a lot of these civil cases for the purpose of the Trump's appeal, which is arguing that he has complete and total immunity from civil cases. So in the quest to figure out whether Donald has immunity from being sued civilly, the judge consolidated these cases together saying, can anyone not, you know, is he totally immune from uh, civil complaints under Title 42 U.S. Code 1985-1, which allows the party so injured or deprived to have action for the recovery of damages occasioned by such injury or deprivation against one or more of the conspirators. The conspirators meaning two or more persons in any state or territory that conspire to prevent by force, intimidation, or threat any person from accepting or holding any office, trust, or place of confidence in the United States, or from discharging any duties thereof, or to induce by like means any officer of the United States to leave any state, district, or place where his duties as an officer are required to be performed, or to injure him in a person in his person or property on account of lawful discharge of the duties of his office or while engaged in the lawful discharge thereof which is the statute under which these all these folks are suing him civilly so that is kind of the the DOJ has been he they, they've been loath to weigh in on this yeah i mean there are a lot of issues and it's not an easy, straightforward issue. And two, it's it's novel, right? I mean, this is not something where we've had a lot of case history on whether or not, you know, nobody, Trump is a sui generis president. There, there is no prior president who engaged. I mean, Nixon isn't even close. And so there's a little year, everybody talking about some case law made during Nixon, but that pales in the comparison with this wide variety of things that Trump was engaged in. And if it sounds complicated, that's because it is. And as a result, you know, DOJ was supposed to weigh in on January 17th. They asked at that point for an extension to February 21st. They asked for another extension to March 1st. And that's when they finally made their filing. So even DOJ is, you know, they're trying to get this right, but it's really complex. And so when they did their filing, they they made a, a number of points. One, they said, you know, the Supreme Court has held that the president can't be sued for damages predicated on what are called his official acts. And that comes from Nixon v. Fitzgerald. Now, they did continue and say in their filing, quote, it is not a rule of absolute immunity for the president, regardless of the nature of his acts. The district court concluded that Trump's speech on the ellipse, quote, encouraged imminent private violent action and was likely to produce such action. And that that's a kind of specific formulation because when you look in terms of like what is free speech and what isn't, I think it's Brandenburg is the case, but it's not, you can shout fire in a crowded theater. Everybody likes to throw that out. That's not the standard. The eventual standard was mm -hmm. one, your knowledge that you knew and were intending to produce imminent violent action, one. And two, not just that you knew and intended to do it, but that it was likely to produce such action. So it's kind of like a two-pronged test. That's why you see that specific wording there. The district court 
also heard that Trump's January 6th speech was not protected by the First Amendment because plaintiffs adequately alleged that it constituted incitement to violence. And they continued, quote, and this is DOJ's filing, in the United States view, such incitement of imminent private violence would not be within the outer perimeter of the office of the President of the United States. Now, importantly, there's a footnote in footnote one, I think, which quotes, again, quoting from the footnote, in addressing that question, the United States does not express any view regarding the potential criminal liability of any person for the events of January 6, 2021, or acts connected with those events. The government also expresses no view on any other issue decided by the district court, including whether plaintiffs have stated a valid claim for relief under 42 U.S.C. 1985-1 or any other cause of action, unquote. Yeah, so they get real specific. Like, we're only talking very specifically about Donald Trump and his ellipse speech because the district court said that it could incite private violence. And that's all we're talking about here in that particular case for civil damages. He is not he does not hold immunity because that action is not within the duties of the president. We aren't talking about anything else here today. And we recommend the court also don't talk about anything else here today. Yeah. And and they're trying to they're walking a tightrope, right? Because all of this stuff is related. This civil action is very much related in all these ongoing criminal trials. You know, first and foremost, the the Proud Boy trial that's going on right now is, you know, what was and ultimately what Jack Smith is looking at, you know, what was the role of Trump himself? And so if you have an argument on the civil side that's talking about Trump's intentions and what was permitted, what was, you know, protected or not protected, you know, DOJ is taking this extraordinary limited, like you said, like, hey, court, we're, we're addressing this teeny tiny issue right here. And that's all we're asking you to rule on because all these other issues, again, get very complicated very quickly. So what's on the table in front of us right now is a small issue. Here's what we think about it. We're not, you know, we're talking about the soup, the appetizer and the spoon for the soup. We're not talking about the entree. We're not talking about the <laughs> dessert. We're not talking about the wine selection. We're just talking about the soup right now. So don't, you know, don't, don't infer anything else. So again, super complicated. Looking back, my takeaway, none of this, I can easily see a scenario where Trump may not even be indicted where these things are still active or rolling along, or he's just been indicted, if he gets indicted, and we're in the middle of election season. This, th these are all complex legal issues that not only to get to a charging decision, but as soon as the charging decision is made, if it is made, we're looking at a very long litigated process that's going to that's gonna take years. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and you know, I've been talking about how this particular amicus filing by Department of Justice reminds me of the DOJ's refusal to represent Mo Brooks in the lawsuits, the civil suits against him for his speech on the ellipse, right? You've heard me say that, sure, DOJ says they aren't going to rep Brooks because he was campaigning. But they went on to say in that filing, even if the court decides that he wasn't campaigning, Overthrowing the government can't be considered part of a congressman's <laughs> official duties, Shock. nor that of any federal employee. Yeah. And that's true for any federal employee. And I was like, they're looking at here's looking at you, Donald. And and DOJ actually addresses this point that I keep bringing up. They address as if they are talking to me. I love it. They're like, all right, then look, Petty Officer Gill, just stop with your thing here. Let's address this. Uh, they said um, that the first term president is pretty much always campaigning. So the 
the POTUS's campaign activity can't really be separated from his official duties like you can with members of Congress, right? So DOJ isn't going to say Trump was campaigning when he incited the insurrection. So basically, they're, they're saying, we want you to know we're not going to make the campaigning argument, and here's why. We don't think it fits here. We don't think we can come in and say he was campaigning during his speech at the Ellipse, and therefore it's not covered uh, by any kind of Department of Justice immunity. Um, instead, they say, we're going straight for the insurrection argument, right? They're, they're squarely saying in, incitation of violence is outside the recognized duties of the president, which was the backup failsafe for the Mo Brooks ruling. But because a president is always campaigning, a first-term president is always campaigning, that's why we're not using that argument here. So kind of cool that they address that. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll see DOJ. I mean, most good attorneys will kind of belt and suspender it to the extent they're saying like, look, you know, we we don't agree that assertion one is valid. But even if you take assertion one is valid, which we don't think it is, the follow on assertion two can't be valid. And so because of both those reasons, it fails. And I think that's what they're doing here. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right. This is something where it's like, don't regardless of whatever you think of this argument that we don't agree with about campaigning, at the end of the day, the underlying activity, it, it, it's not permissible in any circumstance. So I think you're absolutely right. And I'm, I'm glad they were listening to your questions and, and took the time to answer them. And hopefully they'll, <laughs> they'll continue to do so, hopefully. I think they were just loath to make that as their main argument, right? Like, dude, an insurrection can't be part of your job. You can't claim that overthrowing the government is part of your job in the government. Right. And that was why it was a secondary argument in the Mo Brooks thing. And they were just like, Shit. I, but I mean, to be honest, the reason they kept putting it off is because the, all of their lawyers that were working on this were also working on uh, other uh, cases, like really pressing cases, including the E. Jean Carroll case. Right. So it's very interesting that the same lawyers who are saying it's not part of your job to incite an insurrection are arguing that it could be part of his job to say that E. Jean Carroll's not his type, so he wouldn't have raped her. Although, you know, there is a difference between defamation and insurrection. Uh, I personally disagree with the, what Trump said in the E. Jean Carroll defamation suit uh, to be part of his duties as president. Although, you know, some would argue that uh, defending against, defama against defamation is part of your job as president. It's, there's a long history of the government and the DOJ defending those defamation cases. Uh, I don't particularly agree, but it's interesting that these these lawyers who are somehow saying, arguing that they should rep the DOJ should represent the office of the president in the Eugene Carroll case, are also saying that Donald doesn't have immunity uh, because what he said here isn't part of his job. That's just weird. Yeah, and I can't I can't even begin to imagine the complexity. I mean, look, DOJ, these things are not like five attorneys at DOJ who are working on these cases. You're talking a huge number of attorneys from Fed programs doing the civil stuff to prosecutors at various U.S. attorney's offices looking at things to prosecutors at DOJ headquarters weighing in to folks in the special counsel's office who have certain cases. All of, <laughs> There's a joke about, you know, the only thing that two lawyers can agree about is that a third lawyer is wrong. So it, when when you get into this idea that all of these different cases, whether it's the civil suits that you know have been greenlit for potentially to, you know, to go after Trump and get get his statements, whether it's the E. Jean Carroll folks, whether it's the folks doing all the criminal stuff, all of these things 
relate to one another. And so if any part of DOJ is going to go in on a filing and take a position on a matter of law, it has ripple effects on all these other cases, which have multiple team, multiple attorneys on all these different teams. And so to sit there and say on any one filing, you know, there are five, seven, eight, I don't know how many other cases which might be impacted. Well, these are exact. These are exactly the same lawyers that, like, by name. That oh, okay. In the for this reason, group of people though, right? For these, for these civil defense. Right, right. For, for no, the the Department of Justice lawyers who who asked for the extension from February seventeenth to or from January seventeenth to February twenty first, and then at, at the additional extension from February twenty first to March second, asked for that extension because the lawyers that were working on arguing this case for the Department of Justice. In the in this particular uh, amicus brief, are the same lawyers that are very busy right now in the E. Jean Carroll case, uh, right? They, and they listed them. Yeah, yeah, understood. Yes, and so that I mean that helps some, but they're still going to like. I would want to know if I were Jack Smith, what arguments are you going to make or not make in terms of what Trump was doing, whether or not that was protected as you know presidential speech or campaign speech, and that might be part of the reason that they said. Look, you know, whatever you do, just please make it clear you're not taking a position on that. So even, and I mean, it does help that these are the same attorneys by name because that narrows the universe. But these do, these potential arguments on matters of law are going to go over into that sort of broader body. Now, I don't think they necessarily care what like the New York District Attorney or Fonnie Willis is going to say or not. But at least at a federal level, there are on the criminal side, not, you know, the civil side of this, there are going to be potential impacts. I'm just, I I think, you know, even that it's good they're the same and that helps, but I think you're yeah. kind of- Yeah, although if I'm Robbie Kaplan, I'm saying to those lawyers, you are carving out a very specific narrow ask for an unprecedented circumstance in a January 6th incitation of private violence by the former president of the United States, yet unwilling to carve out an extraordinary exception for the president of the United States making statements, uh, defamatory statements about my client. Uh, You're grouping them all in with your defamation precedent, but insisting to keep everything separate in this other case. I, I'm just like thinking if I'm if I'm Robbie Kaplan and Eugene Carroll, that is going to be the yeah, argument no that I make to the to the appeals court uh, with 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 regard to these specific attorneys. Uh, but you know, you know, these are two different aspects of law entirely, even though they they do have they're all related in that it's Trump and it, he's saying shit that could or could not be part of his job. But, you know, the, the legality issue, it's going to be interesting to see how they make that argument yep. Uh, yep. and and whether or not it, this particular decision is brought up in that particular case. Yep. Uh, no doubt. We'll, we'll see. And we'll talk about it here on Clean Up on Aisle 45, my friend. Sounds good. Well, it was um, great to chat with you for this week's episode. I'm, yeah. I'm Pete Struck. Yeah, and I've been Allison Gill, and uh, I can't wait until we uh, get some more information on this weaponization committee. Clown show. It's just <laughs> remarkable. It it's is. not going to get any better. I mean, they have they have uh, Matt Taibbi and somebody else coming in to talk about the Twitter files, and I, I look forward to hearing about the questions of uh, Taibbi's experience as a journalist in Moscow as a young man. That won't be uh, quite fun, so something to talk about in the future. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that Raskin and Goldman and and the the Democrats on the committee, while they're still there, bring up those <laughs> questions. It'll be fascinating. We'll talk about it next week, and then of course, for all the patrons, you'll get the bonus episode this weekend too. We'll we'll see you then, uh, and uh, thank you for listening to Clean Up on Aisle Forty Five. 
Cleanup on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Cleanup on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W-Media. <laughs>